Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of Ego Check. Uh, once again, my name is Michael Mallon. Uh, today I'm joined by Teos uh, Abadia, uh, who is joining me to talk about all things D&D and Pearl Jam. <laughs> How are you doing today? Woo-hoo! I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, um, so we were joking on Twitter before the show about just spending an hour to talk about Pearl Jam, but uh, I actually think we're going to spend most of the time talking about D&D. So I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to how long I've known you, and um, since writing the blog since 2011, you've been a very prominent member of the really role-playing game D&D community online, being very active on Twitter, but also being a writer for Wizards of the Coast, uh, Cobalt Press, have published quite a few things, including Cloud Giant's Bargain, which was the adventure run, uh, the most recent Acquisitions Incorporated event. So it's really wonderful to have you on the show here joining with me. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Michael. You know, same for me. It's been super fun to follow along on your blog and read it and, and interact with you online. And so it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Plus, I, I listened to your conversation with uh, Mike Shea, Sly Flourish, and that was super fun listen. So I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And so there's a ton of topics I'm really excited to jump into, but uh, maybe branching off what you just mentioned there about uh, my f- conversation with Mike uh, from a few weeks ago, one of the things we were talking about that he was pretty passionate about was just this idea of creating your own content, creating your own game system, getting your ideas out there, and just this sort of old school model of gatekeepers and just sounds like you had some interesting thoughts on that or reactions and maybe we should just dive in there yeah sure sure you know actually uh mike and i uh traded some emails on the subject kind of talking about it too and i i agree with him in the most part and and probably really i just plain agree with him but uh but kind of what was you know where he talked about the presence of gatekeepers I would add a bit to that conversation, and if folks haven't read it or haven't listened to it, you know, definitely go back and listen to what Mike says because there's a lot of truth there. And 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 for sure, I fully agree. This idea that you know you've got to wait for somebody to bless um, your work, or that there are only certain ways that you can approach the industry. You know, if you want to get your stuff out there somehow, right? Create something and and have it be seen. There are lots of ways to do that, and, and you don't have to go through any particular process. So, so for sure, um, you know, I'd never want to say anything other than that uh, at, the, at the very basic level, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can create and you can share, and the world has never been better for that than it is now. And whatever you want to do, and I think that really we saw that starting with fourth edition, right? With where people on blogs would just be like, "I get it. I get those, what these mechanics are." There's it's such a kind of easy to grasp mechanical system so you know here's my monster here's my reskin thing here's my um you know power that i think is awesome and and in a way that i think because of the way fourth edition was so stable it wasn't just some person's you know really random like say second edition spell that who knows if it's balanced this was something that was very easy to kind of end up being balanced interchangeable and and we're still in that world even as fifth edition is more uh, open in its design and less exact on its math, I think the the workings of it are a little more transparent, and it's very easy for people to come out and share. Uh, and there are many ways to do it: a blog, you know, picture on Twitter. Like there's just so many ways that you can get your stuff out there for sure. You mentioned the uh, like fourth edition being easy, and that's you know that rings true for me because that's when I jumped into to blogging and creating content. And I, I think you kind of nailed that fourth edition was easy for a dm to just kind of create things and put them out there and get feedback you kind of hinted that fifth edition has maybe become a little bit more complex in that regard what do you what do you think about the difference there um you know it's just things like um one monster that's theoretically harder than other just isn't (laughs) <laughs> um, maybe maybe it just isn't period. You know, like Mike Shea's talked about the vampire, and he's got you know some cool writings on that. And you know why the, the default vampire and even Strahd in the recent Mega Adventure, you know, just isn't that formidable a foe. And you've got to kind of work hard to make them formidable. Um, so I think there's, there's some things there that just aren't, you know, because there isn't such a strong math base. Sometimes what a, a person designing it thinks will be a certain challenge level won't be. 
and players are always ahead of the curve. I mean, that's true for every edition. So, so there's there's always a little bit of, of work you have to do to play test things if you really want the quality to be high. But at the level of sharing ideas, you know, nothing stops you. And I think fifth is is strong enough as a mathematical model as as opposed to some of the really early editions that that people get a sense of what should be there and, and, and at least enough of a sense that it's it's easy for something to be of value to other people, right? But where you know where I might kind of differ a bit from Mike or, or put a slightly different emphasis than what Mike Shea said is on kind of why they're these gatekeepers mm-hmm. um, and and sort of the kind of the value of why they're there um, and why we sometimes think of them as a sort of construct that you have to go through is I think because you know a lot of times what we want to do as a fan is see our stuff appear in an official capacity. And that doesn't have to be that way today, but but it but it still kind of is in our brains. And for sure, you know, when I first had a, a, a magazine or you know it was online version of it, but in DDI, the online version of of uh, Dragon Magazine, when I first had an article in that, I mean, that was amazing, and it was amazing every time that it happened. But uh, and it's still amazing when I get to write for Wizards, and and so mm-hmm. I think that just is the reality, right? We love buying official stuff. And when our name is on it, I mean, that is so cool. And I am a 12-year-old or even younger every time that happens for me. And so, you you know, I think a lot of people naturally want that. And the way that, that I got to do it was not because there was sort of some, you know, magical gate and I had to say a special keyword, but I did a lot of work before that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And the gatekeepers sometimes exist because... You have to do that work to kind of get to that point. And, and it's true for any of the RPG companies, not just wizards, that you, you know, they're going to ask you to kind of show what you've got. And so starting off on moment one isn't, you know, like just, well, I've done some stuff for my home campaign. Uh, it's a lot harder than that. You know, like how good is your grammar? Um, how good is your sentence structure, your, your paragraphs? How well do they lead from one to the other, right? This sort of stuff that teachers used to grade us on. Sure. Um, it it really matters how you communicate, and and I am a far better author today than I was just three years ago, just by having written so much. I, I just I communicate better, and I feel bad for the people who went through my earlier stuff. <laughs> well, but. I think you you talk about the importance of collaboration, and if you're collaborating with people who are, if you want to call them gatekeepers, but in other ways, they think that they're more experienced and they have done yeah. this for years if not decades so being able to get that type of feedback and mike even spoke about that being able to you know get feedback from some of his from some of these folks that are really experienced in that way but it it brings up something i wanted to ask you about in terms of just approaches to to being an author to being uh being a content creator and how that's really changed over time i know you've been writing things now for several years and i think even in that time there's been some pretty seismic changes into how you can get content out there um so not only about how do you think it's it's changed over the years but but where do you think it's going like what's next um yeah there have been a lot of changes um you know, it, there were things like before you could sort of provide a submission to Wizards and they'd look at whether they'd bring it into Dungeon or Dragon magazines. Uh, and, and now there are no submissions because that, that isn't kind of a, a vehicle. They have the new Dragon Plus magazine. But I think they really just specifically go out and grab people. Um, Organized Play does have some submissions to the Adventurers League, but only every now and then because I think the reality is that there's so many interested people that when they get a number of submissions they like, it takes them a long time to go through them. And they also want to go with tried and true people. And and I can understand that. And it's not just that it's, you know, some uh, sort of, you know, nepotism type system uh, because I, I was an admin for an organized play campaign and, Literally every single person I pick, every single person that wrote was someone that I picked, mm-hmm. um, and not through a submission process, but be, through me knowing somebody. So that's almost like the system we're saying we want to destroy. But but I actually I, I reached out to people that I knew through a variety of ways, and some of it was you know cool blog posts, um, interesting ideas on Twitter. Right, there were some people that I reached out to who really were in that category. 
and and I knew kind of going in because I'd done organized play for many years, you know, helped and volunteered and written little things and slowly worked my way up. That sometimes what I was asking these folks, you know, they were going to say yes, but they didn't know what they're saying yes to. Okay. And and they would learn as they started going, like, wow, this is serious work. <laughs> and, and many of them would say, kind of, I you know, I'm barely able to get this to you. Like, this is so hard. Um, to 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 be so you know structured and and write it in a way that every DM is going to get it and it's going to run well at most of the tables that it, it you know it's going to come forward and, and be a part of right for them mm-hmm. um, it is a really hard thing to do and and so what would often happen with newer authors is that we would go through a process you know outlining and and then they'd write the meat of it and then they'd give it back to us and we'd read it over and we'd give it back to them and say okay you know here's kind of what we suggest you change a lot of times they'd say um, can you just do that? You know, do those, take it the rest of the way to the, to the goal line. Cause I, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> they're just tapping out. <laughs> yeah. They're tapping out. Right. And so we'd say, okay, yeah. And I, you know, finished their adventure. Um, because it is really hard. Right. And, and that, uh, that remains true today. I think for, for folks who, who the admins of the adventures league is that if they are looking at, you know, somebody that's coming through the, uh, an open call and they've looked at the submissions and said, okay, you know, based on a one page encounter or two page encounter, or whatever, you know, we're going to put you on our list. They know probably, I would guess, just, you know, I'm guessing for them that they would, they would, they know that that entails a lot of work versus if they go to someone that they've already worked with, they know that that person will develop an actual real thing and that it'll look like the outline and so on. And, and that is rarer than you'd think. Um, and there are also a lot of discoveries, like some people, you know, were friends of mine would produce super cool ideas, but you would need to really edit heavily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're willing to take that on, that's great. If not, then, you know, that's where, again, more reason to go with the people you know. Right. And it, it comes down, I mean, you're talking a little bit about the execution of an idea, you know, having some, you know, adventure that you want to put out there, but how do you, like you said, how do you have the right language to connect with a lot of different players, a lot of different DM approaches? And now... I think there's some shortcuts for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> so not only in terms of getting your content out there. So, you know, anybody, including myself can, you know, throw something up on a blog or, you know, submit a product to the DM guild or, you know, just try to get their adventure out there. Yeah. But I also think with all the different content, there's ways you can just, I mean, copy and paste, plagiarize, take ideas from different places, make it your own. Yeah. It, it can get a little dicey. I wonder what are your thoughts about like how did not so much a right a gatekeeper, but who regulates all the content and how do you, <laughs> how do you know as a consumer, like this is a good adventure versus, well, this looks okay, but how's it going to work at my table? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a tough one because I think the guild already, you know, f- feels like it is just, uh, I don't know, exploding with content. Uh, and I think probably most people who go to the DM guild and then look at all those PDFs would say, Wow, this is overwhelming. You know, where do I start? How do I know what's good? And and the way that the site and this is a site problem, but the way that the site presents to you these top categories or whatever top products, uh, it is fairly artificial, and it and it's there is no proper way for it to give you at least currently in the way it's built to give you a sense of what you really want. And so it does feel like you're swimming in stuff. And some of the quality when you when I listen to podcasts that regularly review these things and spend a little money, you know, getting these things and looking at them. Uh, the, the quality is all over the map, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of, you know, you asked about sort of changes in authoring. There is a lot that's happening. And as an author, you you, you want to try to stay on things like, you know, the greater narrative emphasis that's in adventures these days. Um, faster scenes, right? Fifth edition really facilitates, and, and there was a clamor for the idea of, you know, let's not just spend an hour and a half on a combat unless there's a really good reason for it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, late three official adventures and, and early four E. Sometimes the fight was just cause, and you know, there, there shouldn't be that. There should always be mental engagement. So even if it's an open wilderness area, or it's a um, uh, series of, of you know, it's a dungeon crawl series of rooms type situation. There needs to be that mental engagement, that story, that hook, the development, something that's going to feed into something else. 
Uh, and the official adventures now show that, which is great. It's so wonderful. You know, so if you look at things that are just sort of like little outdoor scenes that exist in even the starter set adventure, Minds of Fandelver, um, there are hooks, right? The ne- it isn't just necromancer in tower with zombies. He's got a story why he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really yeah. enjoyed that from the, you know, the adventure I've been playing with my group is the, the Curse of Strahd. And we're just still early on in the intro part of that adventure, the, the death house. And a lot of it is just kind of exploring a house and all these different rooms. And there's, there's a story that unfolds as yeah. the players go from like the first floor to the second to the, they finally get to the attic and, like you're uncovering this mystery and there's a couple of fights along the way, but really it's all about exploration, investigation. And I think that takes, at least for me, I think I would have had a really hard time jumping into an adventure like that as a DM with less experience than I have right now. Yeah. Cause yeah. fourth edition, it was like, okay, I have three, four hours to fill. Well, that's two fights and maybe something, <laughs> something to connect them. And that, yep. that's kind of literally how I would prepare. And everyone had a great time and it was fun, but it was a different yeah. type of style. For sure. For sure. Yeah, those are big differences. Um, and I think on the authoring side, because they're, you know, we're, we're, when we're talking about kind of getting your stuff out there, you know, especially if it's like ignore the gatekeepers, get your stuff out there. Back when you would publish something on like a messaging board back in, in, in the Stone Age I that I grew shivers. up in. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd go on to alt.rec.something, and you would uh, post your spell or whatever. The reality is most people might look at it, but few people are going to actually use it. Um, but the, the vehicles that we have for communicating things are so much more powerful, and the number of people you can reach is so much higher that you really sort of want to do what real publishers do, which is playtest and get a second set of eyes. And something that you know is really the norm on the publishing side of things is that you have a, a, a writer, um, often called a designer, and then you have the developer. And the developer has the license to bring their expertise to look at what you wrote and go, no, it kind of needs to be like this. And that's a really important person to have because when you write, you have a very kind of specific perspective that comes from where your idea is germinated from and then they don't always get to the end because you have this knowledge in your brain of of the many things you could have done of the things you think you're doing and sometimes you know there's something lost in translation right bits are lost in the data stream and what you write may not really make that vision come forward mm-hmm. um, and somebody can someone else with clean new mind looks at it fresh eyes and that second set of eyes finds all these things and goes, oh, yeah, that needs to happen. And so, you know, almost anything that, that you've seen of mine that is official um, has had the benefit of usually really fantastic development. Um, so Cloud Giant's Bargain is a good example where, you know, if I look at the final version and I compare it to my version, I think my version's good. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but Scott Fitzgerald Gray is just a plus level category and when he, you know he's written so much amazing stuff he's an artist he can do everything mm-hmm. uh, i said this before but i think the world of him and then when he you know he takes stuff and he gets it he gets where it's trying to go and he just makes these little you know sanding of the edges writes it up gets it to be level and it, it's so much better for it and that's something that also you know if people are trying to avoid the gate and do their own thing you you have to take into account that if you want to look like you're that good then you'll need someone else to help you out yeah i think that's that's a great tip and i I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing scott a few uh, years ago and yeah it was wonderful to kind of pick his brain about writing games and running games but yeah having somebody just come up with their own adventure write it design it but then also try to be the developer and try to wear two hats at once uh, yeah. It just it sounds like, from your point of view, it puts them at a, a significant disadvantage because yep. I even just think about editing my own blog post, like, and I'll go back a week later and look at it and be like, what? Right, <laughs> like, right, yeah. I, I thought I had, like, sentences will be mangled, and I'm sure I've read it twice, but your <laughs> your brain fills in what you expect to see, and yeah. it's hard to even just proofread your own stuff, let alone play test it. And I wonder how much how much of the stuff on, for example, DM Guild is play tested at any capacity as opposed to just like, here's an idea. I'm throwing it out there. Have fun with it. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Especially because they probably do realize, Oh, this is hard work. Oh my God, I'm done. Let me put that out there. Right. 
So you know, one thing on on kind of changes of, of where it's going that that just I had this thought is that um, I've been always trying to get to or increasingly get to. Um, something that I actually played many years ago, which I used to play a lot of living Spycraft. In Spycraft, one of the things I would often find is I'd have this amazing scene that I'd play through as a player. I'd be like, oh, this is so cool. We had the best time. Wow, that was such a well-done adventure. Um, and Legend of the Five Rings, and I would do this too. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go and look at the actual adventure, and it would be like a paragraph hmm. that would have created this, you know, our experience. It was just, you know, a paragraph in the adventure. And the DM had ripped off of that. And it, and what it was is the power of how it was written was to just really have the right seeds in it so that the DM knew what to do and how to have us launch our own piece. And I think there there is more to be done in that area on the D&D side to do more of that where it isn't so prescribing but more facilitating play mm-hmm. um, in a way that any DM can run it, right? That it's not, doesn't require someone who super knows the system or is a super accomplished DM, but it really has the right info there to support that kind of open experience. I think that that's something where we could do more over time. That that connects with me. I remember just when I was running my 4E campaign for my group and just coming up with content, kind of mixing things that I would see from different adventures and incorporate into my homebrew world and, I always erred on the side of putting a lot of information for myself, uh, like at the table, like, okay, here's what this villain's going to say, or here's what this NPC is going to say, and here's some specific things that I want to get across to the players. And I think that skill of just putting out a paragraph for the DM or for myself as someone running a game and then running with it in whatever direction it takes, that's that's a challenge. That's a different skill. Like how, what do you think are some good tips for people to do that or experiment with that? Um, well, I, you know, I uh, break up in those old adventures. They're actually the spycraft adventures are freely available on their website. So you can, uh, uh, get them from crafty games and take a look at them. But, um, yeah, I try to, I, that's what I often do when I'm trying to do that. I go back to the well, to something else that I like that approximated that. And I try to see how, what I could do with that. Um, but, you know, so that there's enough structure so you don't get lost. Like one of the things that uh, I don't have experience with and I need to get more experience with um, is the gumshoe system with Knights Black Black Agents, which is an espionage vampire type game that I really dig. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written my own stuff for it and I've played around with it a bit. Um, but their, their bigger adventures almost are like, you know, in, in those whodunit series – um, where you have the pegboard with all the different like pictures of people and terrorists and crime scenes, and then you have these yarn pieces, you know, interact, intersecting with them. Okay. That's almost what the adventures are like. And so it doesn't cool. say like you know start here, go to this next place. It's more like here are all these. Di- we're describing all these things that are on the pegboard, and we're giving you a few loose connections. And when you first look at the material, it, it's it's kind of confusing. But I also love what it promises, and so I, that's an area where I want to sharpen my skills by running it based off of what's already published, and then figure out, you know, how could I someday do something like that in D&D that isn't confusing? You know, it's real transparent, real effortless, but accomplishes that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something there that I hope I can learn from. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really cool. You, going back to something you said a few minutes ago, probably longer than a few minutes ago, but you mentioned organized play a few times, and yeah. I know that's something that you're heavily involved with, and honestly, something I'm a little bit naive, well, actually, a lot naive to. I've, I've never been involved in that, and I've only just kind of played games with um, friends, and like when I went to Gen Con a few years ago, certainly jumped in on a few games, but for those of us like myself that don't really know what organized play is and how it fits into wizards of the coast and the grand scheme of things, like what, uh, what's good about it? How does it work? And sure. Yeah. Um, Why would you plug it? So to speak. Yeah. So, well, you know, there, there are a number of of ways and reasons I'd, I'd plug it. Um, as a, as a designer, uh, someone who wants to, to learn and, and create better material, there is no better way than organized play. I mean, if I were, you know, my one tip on how to become a better writer is organized play. And the, the simple reason is that what happens during organized play is you often have several tables in a room 
that are running the same thing or over the course of the day they're running the same thing at a local convention and mm-hmm. and practically anywhere in the US within driving distance is either a gaming store that runs organized play or a local convention that will run organized play and it's worth looking for those and it's you know it always sounds crazy like oh, I'm going to go to a room full of people I don't know but you literally walk in, you go, hey, I'm here to play D&D, and they're like, cool, <laughs> come on over. I'll, they're in the business of selling it and getting you a seat. Like, they're not going to, you know. It's a captive no audience, much like going yeah. to see, like, see Star Wars. Like, you're all there for the same reason. It's not that scary. Yeah, exactly. And and with organized play, like, you want people, right? You want bodies to make this engine hum. And so you're not in a business of, of being closed to others. But, yeah, so what happens at these things is that, you know, they'll – let's say I sign up uh, as a volunteer. I'm going to run um, at this local convention. You know, I'd like to run on Saturday. Okay, uh, let me give you this one adventure. You're going to run it three times. So you run it three times, and one is you learn from just reading what this person wrote. Okay, cool, neat approach. I get it. I get what they're doing. But you run it the first time, and you learn a bit. You run it the second time. You start making these improvements over how you ran it the first time. You run it the third time. You really now you're cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, Your third table will almost always be a sea change from the first. That delta helps you understand, you know, what is it the author wrote that I kind of missed the first time and why? Or with a scene that ran a little poorly in my first go, why did it run so much better the third time? Or sometimes you hit a group that doesn't like a particular scene. Well, what, what did I do on this run? You know, why did I, you know, mess up the third one? How could I have done it more the way it went the first time? There is so much to learn from that. Like, it's just fascinating. And I've been doing this for so many years. I started organized play in 2000. And 16 years later, uh, I am still having those same experiences when I run at a table. So like at Origins, I ran the intro adventure and I would run, you know, I uh, usually run it in, in a little bit less than an hour with plenty of time for everything. And so do that all day, often running the same set of them, you know, three adventures or so. Uh, you, you just learn a ton and you learn a ton about what players look for and want and, and, and how the uh, author managed to pull it off and then you get ideas well if they did that and that resonated I'm going to try this or this didn't work because of this factor so I'm going to avoid that when I write um, so and that could go on forever but yeah if you're an author doing that is fantastic and if you write for organized play and you get to run your adventure that way or play it or watch people run it that is so good you know it teaches you so much when you see how what you wrote is run by other DMs and, and how it's received. That, that's fantastic. As a player, um, it's just a great way to not worry about what so many of us worry with gaming, which is how do I get my next game, right? And, and in the olden days, it was like you'd go to a game store and put your name on the pegboard and say, you know, okay, I hope someone calls me, or you'd pick up some number and see whatever. And, and then you'd inevitably get like, you know, five pages of house rules and, you know, it was kind of a scary scene. Um, organized play has you know a player document that's a pretty simple pretty straightforward uh reflects the rules of D as you know them document you know how to level up how to acquire loot that kind of stuff just so things are straightforward when uh, many people are playing it simplifies uh, yeah and because you're you know you're not at your home dm you're going to be playing with any number of dms um like today i could play at the gaming store uh that's you know on the corner of your house because i flew into town with you and then the next um you know somewhere in in, in your neighborhood and then uh, i can fly back to portland where i live and i could play at my gaming store with the very same character so we need a way to kind of track loot and stuff um so that we know that everything's okay according to the rules so there there's a rules document once you read that and actually you don't even have most people who try the first game haven't even read that um but you know it, it provides the basis for how everything runs in the campaign and it means you're not worried about some crazy delta between your games. And you can travel. Like I, I got into organized play because I traveled for work. So I could never do a home campaign because, you know, I would miss sessions all the time. Yeah. So now I could play anywhere and slowly play through the actual story, right? I could say, well, I played chapter two. Oh, cool. We're running, you know, chapter four. Great. I, you know, what did I miss? You missed this. Okay, but jump right in. Okay. And so th- th- you mentioned some really good reasons for why it helps, like someone as a DM or a designer, how it helps players. And you know, it seems like o- obvious reasons that it helps uh, Wizards of the Coast and D and D is that it gets the game out there, and the more people playing, the better it is for everyone. But you know, are there other ways that it helps uh, Wizards? 
Yeah, I think it creates a, a really big sense of community. It, it always has. The, the old organization was called the RPGA, and they, it was almost like a you know series of clubs connected get together. And, and as time has passed and with the Internet and everything, it is now just really more of one enormous giant community. Uh, and so there are all kinds of forums where people hang out and uh, Facebook pages and Google Plus groups and all that. But it's a really big sense of community once you start to play um, within that, that uh, within the organized play program, the Adventures League for D&D. So they create, I think for Wizards, that's a big benefit to have this community sense that's going around um, that keep that helps grow itself, right, and helps um, create ideas and, and sort of keep generating within that community. Um, but also it's part of the brand strategy. So the Adventures League has seasons that are in tune, aligned with the seasons that are the storyline seasons from the big adventures that Wizards is writing. So there's a Strahd season to match the Strahd adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Storm King's Thunder season going on right now that um, goes off of the same plot that's taking place in Storm King's Thunder. And so it's part of their brand strategy and another vehicle which people learn this. So, you know, they can... I can play with my uh, guild called the Harbingers in the Neverwinter uh, MMO, and our guild, you know, is going through Storm King's Thunder content. And then I can go to my local gaming store, and they're running Storm King's Thunder Adventures League, and and so on, right? And so it's part of their big deployment strategy. Uh, I think it's also how they bring in a lot of freelancers. You know, that's how I came to be was volunteering for organized play to to help run conventions to write little tiny bits to then co-author and then eventually author mm -hmm. bald man games uh help is a group that helps run the bigger D, &D conventions yes yeah, and they have Con back in 2012 and they had a big presence there yeah so they're now working on educating dms and they have a dm program um, they've created, uh, and I'm helped with this, um, to create a, a guide on proper behavior at conventions of how DMs should behave, how to encourage diversity. They have, uh, like, like we did presentations at I think two Gen Cons ago, where where we gave DM tips and like I talked about player types. So a lot of education can take place through organized play. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that comes back to wizards like wizards learns from all these volunteers and they themselves show up at the big cons and they learn, okay, what are people liking? What do they want more of? Um, so things like the open that happened, this big competition that happened at origins last year and will be at origins next year. Um, I was one of the authors on it and all of the open coming back had to do with feedback from people. Right. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned something that I, I wanted, wanted to jump on there because in hearing you talk about organized play and, you know, my own experiences, like I have a buddy who does uh, some magic, like local magic, the gathering tournaments, and yeah. always hear from him interesting stories about some of the more um, interesting or problematic players that he runs into, some of the behaviors that are not exactly appropriate for some of these gatherings, and <laughs> no pun intended there. So I wonder, how is that moderated or like how do you accommodate different people because as a dm you know just run in with your friends or maybe like a few like friends of friends like you kind of know the personalities you know what to expect and i think it's a little bit easier to deal with some of those behaviors um but like for someone who's being obnoxious or doing other things that are inappropriate like how is that i don't want to say policed but yeah um just what what kind of assistance is there for for people to learn how to to manage that yeah no sure so some of it depends on how it's being run and and often uh it's the, the first layer is something that's provided by whatever the larger kind of entity is so at a convention conventions will often have a uh a set of policies and should have policies um if you're a baldman games dm um, we have that conduct, the code of conduct document mm -hmm. that I helped write that talks through what the expectations are for a DM that's running for Bald Man Games, right? Where we have to be inclusive. Um, we have to be respectful. There's no bad language. There's, you know, absolutely no racism, sexism, anything like that. Um, the respect for someone's boundaries where if they say, hey, you know, this is a subject I am not comfortable with, mm -hmm. then you immediately, you know, back off. Um, 
there, there's a lot of awareness around that amongst that group. Um, stores will often have policies, right? But sometimes they don't. In the past, when it was part of the RPGA, D&D Organized Play would have policies that were kind of pretty on paper draconian and that the, 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 there was a whole system by which you had infractions and it got reviewed and you could, you know, end up being banned from the organization. Um, and, and, you know, magic has that. Um, but in magic, I think there's more teeth to it because you are often, you care about this sort of advancement system that takes place there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's easier to police it because it's an already in a sort of official event anyway. Um, with D&D play, there's less that's really official and that's about advancement. So uh, you can't uh, – the enforcement that was there was sort of you know, hardly ever used and, and, and very hard to police. So the emphasis these days is more on education uh, and expectations so that then the community can be learning how to handle these situations. But I, you know, you're still going to have a there, – there, there isn't a whole lot um, you can do, I think, organizationally, let's say wizards can do to really say, here's how we're going to own when a person does these things, right? Because I, I just think that that isn't uh, an easy way to address it. I think it has to be on the level of education and promotion of uh, the right way of, of uh, handling situations of what the expectations should be of what a good player is, how we should conduct ourselves in these situations. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it, no, it does. And I, I think somewhat related is, and you mentioned the word diversity, which is definitely a topic I had keyed in to, to chat with you about. Sure. Um, so in terms of diversity in just the role-playing game industry or even just in conventions and things like that, um, it, it certainly seems like over time it's becoming more diverse, which is a wonderful thing. Um, yep. I think with that, it, it brings in some challenges, and this you could even connect this to political factors going on in our country right now, where <laughs> as there's more diversity, there's a segment of the population that kind of was rather enjoying the status quo and the privilege that was there with like the with what was happening before, and now things are changing and People don't like change sometimes, so that's bad. So um, I just was curious about your thoughts about not only the organized play, but maybe even going beyond that of how do you experience diversity in the field? You're certainly much more um, involved in the in the and how the sausage is made more than more than I am. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Uh, so so for me, diversity is, is super critical. Um, I. Uh, like many people, you know, growing up, uh, took a lot of things for granted, even though uh, I'm Hispanic. Uh, my dad's from Colombia, South America. I grew up in South America. Mm-hmm. So so I had a pretty diverse upbringing. And I've always cared about cultural richness and, and diversity in many ways. I, you know, in many ways just hadn't thought of so many issues. And even with my wife, you know, we'll talk about how we just see the world in a new way now, and we see a lot of these challenges that we face in different ways. I see, I, you know, there are things I didn't think of as a young Hispanic that I do now, um, and things like politics bring that out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being seeing more years in your workforce, right, where you kind of see these interpersonal relationships and you meet different people and you see how these things impact our lives. Uh, being on Twitter and seeing the female thought leaders we have, you know, share what they go through, the challenges they have, the persons of color who are on Twitter who share their experiences and you realize, you know, it's not the same. It, it, it is harder um, and, and there's something here worth fighting for. Um, and then the many people that I've been able to meet over the years who have, who bring diversity and from whom I've benefited because they have these different ideas, different approaches um, different takes on things. Uh, all of that, you know, makes me want to fight for diversity as much as I can. We, you know, in the, in the organized play area, we've had diversity in some ways and not in others. So we've had female leads of the RPGA, uh, Jean Rabe and Penny Petticord Williams and Linda Cross. They all, you know, were authors. They ran the, the organized play system. We Wizards has a very diverse group. Um, you know, they've got gay members who are openly gay. They've got 
uh, a lot of women on the team that work in all kinds of capacity. Um, but there still isn't that much diversity, like an organized play. You know, we have uh, female admin, but a lot of the authors, the vast majority of authors are male. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of, of DMs are male. Um, there's still a lot to be done there. I think DMs especially is one that could really use help because the, there's such a difference when I think you sort of, you know, we naturally look up to our DMs. And so if our DMs are female, you know, we're, we're looking up to them and we're placing our trust in them and working with them in a, in a certain way that really changes the dynamic. Um, but even that's changing. Like I, I work the PAX convention, Penny Arcade Expo. Sure, yeah. And PAX is more of a, uh, it's primarily a video game convention. And video games tend to track younger in demographics, uh, or at least the people who attend these conventions. So overall, it, it's, uh, there's some surprising demographics to uh, video games, uh, like women in their 40s. But, you know, at this convention, it's often really young kids. Uh, I say kids because I'm older. Sure. I'm well, there <laughs> with you. Know, let's say people in their teens to their 20s, there are a lot of those, and they're often couples. And so they'll come to play D&D and they're like, hey, you know, I heard about this or my friend played D&D and, and we brought the whole gang here to just have this experience. Right. And so you're running a table for several couples that are dating each other. And that's not the typical kind of table to run for. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is such a cool opportunity to showcase the game for them. Um, but over the years, it's changed even further to where this last packs. Uh, was, and, and I'm talking about PAX West, there are several PAX, but this is the PAX West that's in Seattle. Uh, this last PAX this year, um, there were a number of women that came up to look for tickets to play a game. Uh, I was working the, the, the admin area, and they would say, I'm the DM for our group, and I was hoping to get you know t- uh, tickets for six of us. And that was a n- different thing to see not just a few, but but many mm-hmm. women come up and say that to me, yeah. uh, which is awesome, right? Want, I'm not just yeah. I'm the DM. I'm leading. I'm you know I'm helping them out, right? That was really cool. Yeah, and I, what do you think paved the way for that? Like how? I mean, I mean, obviously, women have been playing role playing games for yeah. since they started. Like it's not like right. that's new, but it does seem like there's a, a, a greater number now, and that it's almost like more accepted and not that it needs to be accepted yeah. but just that it seems to be more a more diverse number of players uh, out there and hopefully dms too so how's that happen i'm so i'm not sure what's brought the the recent set of changes though i suspect we're see we're going to see a whole bunch more because of the effects like shows like uh, the critical role mm-hmm. or these other um live play games that really showcase if not female dms female players or sure. Uh, and then also things like geek and sundry content where you see a lot of women running shows, right? They are talking, they're, they're the, sometimes it's just all women, right? Who are, um, talking about geeky subjects and about their love for it. I know Extra Life, I've been, uh, lucky enough to work with D&D on the Extra Life shows the last two, uh, times. And when they're raising money for children's hospitals, they are also, you know, they do that by having people play D&D. And one of the things they've been really good at is making sure the D&D crew has done this, you know, very clearly to have lots of women at those games and women DMs. Um, so my DM last year, uh, Susan Morris, who's worked at Wizards of the Coast, and she's amazing, right? And so when you see, when people see this, right, then you know, well, I can do that. And I think I've had some conversations with folks on Twitter. And I think you were even jumped in on some of these just about the even the art direction for fifth edition and the yeah. different NPCs in the book and the different, um, you know, races and kind of the even split between men and women in, in the book. Um, it's just kind of a stark difference, I think. Um, at least it was definitely noticeable to me and other people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's, that's one way that even just looking at a rule book or a player's handbook, you can see like, oh, well, this cleric is, oh, that's a woman. Okay. And this fighter is a woman. Yeah. And like, it just becomes yeah. like, it's not where the male is the default all the time. Right. right. Um, and it seems like yeah, that was the case great. maybe 20 years ago. And you, you know, it can be really hard to, to do that. I mean, art, obviously like that's a visual thing. So we can selectively choose that. And I'd say for, for many years, uh, for as long as I've been formally writing for Wizards uh, itself, not the organized play, but for Wizards, 
um, there has been an emphasis coming from them where they say, you know, when you write up your art order, uh, be inclusive. Mm-hmm. And, and that's information they give to their artists as well to, to push for that. Um, but, you know, when I wrote the adventure Howling Void, which was the second season of Adventurers League, um, and it's out there on the Guild if people want to check it out, uh, I set a goal for myself of making every NPC female uh, as just a way to learn. Mm-hmm. Right. OK, well, I'm going to make every single <laughs> creature person. You know, if it's got a gender, that gender is female. Sure. And what I found fascinating was it's really hard to communicate gender. Uh, because a lot of times in the way that you write up an adventure, um, you know, like if you're finding fighting four bandits, you know, it's sort of weird to say the four female bandits. I mean, you can, uh, but you know, usually I'm, I'm not specifying gender is what I found about my writing. So then if I tried to say the gender, it was sort of wordy and, and, and kind of weird. Um, so I, I experimented with various ways to try to communicate the gender without being too heavy handed about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, you know, when I turned it in, there were only two male characters. Um, one was sort of because I thought it really fit. And the other one was one that I had to use because it was a tie in from the previous adventure. And this person had to be in the adventure, mm-hmm. though, if they were killed in the previous adventure, then I made it a female leader instead. Mm-hmm. But what was funny was in development, uh, a lot of the gender switched back, <laughs> huh. and um, that's just. And I think it was probably a female developer, but it's it, you know it, it's still it, some of it switched back and names changed to, to male. Um, like I had a bunch of monks, and I, you know it's like these stereotypes in our minds where like you think about like, the monastery and the monks, where it's all it's all men. Um, so I had purposely gone and given them all female names, but some of them switched back. And then sometimes, you know, like, I, well, if I look at the final result, kind of just to cut to the chase, if I look at the final result, it doesn't really show that I tried to do that hmm. because it was very hard to achieve that. Yeah, um, it sounds like there's a little disappointment there and that you made a big push to make that happen and it didn't really work <laughs> out the way you wanted it yeah, to. Yeah, it was hard, but it's a learning process. My second uh, adventure after that, or the next adventure after that for organized play was the artifact for the... Uh, Curse of Strahd season, and there um, I have interactions with ghosts, and these different ghosts you meet have different agendas, and one of the things is I, I kind of was toying around with the idea of, like, how could I make it, take the board game Clue, sure. right, where in Clue you have, you know, who did it, in what room, with what weapon, mm-hmm. and it could be anything, it could be mustard with the pipe, and they did it in the, you know, library, uh, and so I sort of put that into the adventure that, uh, it's random who did the crime. I mean, the DM can choose too, but it, it's there's just a table of the different ghosts, and one of them did it. And based on what they did it, they did it with a certain weapon, and so you need to kind of find this out in the adventure. Cool. Um, and one of the things I did is there's a love aspect, and that's that was part of the story I was that was fed to me was the idea that there is this heavy essence here um, that brings uh, undying love in as a concept. And so these ghosts being undying, that all made sense to me. So one of the things that I had was that, well, the ghost that did it was in love with this particular person. Mm-hmm. And so I used a variety of genders on purpose such that it is very possible. I don't know if it's half the time, probably around half the time. You know, the pairing will be male-male, uh, mm-hmm. right? And that's sure. the, the love relationship that can happen. And And I thought, you know, I gave the DM the latitude to change it because I'm not in the business of trying to, like, you know, I don't want to make you uncomfortable with that. If you're not ready for this yet, you know, I'm not going to say that you're wrong. You know, we're all we all have to transition and, and, and embrace things over time. But I just wanted that to be there, that if you're going to say, well, I'm not OK with that, you're going to have to consciously say that and, and re-roll or, or change it or whatever. Right. Because the, the adventure will roughly, I don't know, maybe almost half the time uh, force you into this or, or give this result to you. And so you're going to have to think about it if you don't like it. And hopefully you end up going, you know what, that's OK. Yeah. And I think through either. Design, development, the art process, anything that challenges those assumptions, like the monastery of monks. Well, of course, they're bald men. Like, that's just right. That's, of course, what they are. Yeah. But anything that makes us think like, oh, well, maybe it doesn't need to be that way. Let yeah. me yeah. let me maybe do make another decision or this this module is kind of forcing me to, to make another decision. Well, I guess I could change it. But anything that kind of makes the DM, the, the players make a choice about those things yeah. rather than relying on those assumptions, I, I think is a great thing. Yeah. And, and the world is, is changing so rapidly and, and, 
you know, like uh, playing uh, the the MMO, the Neverwinter MMO that D and D has, and it does a great job of capturing the world, which is why I like playing it. And there's somebody in our alliance who routinely runs all these uh, big events where you kill dragons. And I just learned the other day that he is a she, and she's 68 years old. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> all right, she's a widowed 68 year old who, you know, has this, I don't know if she, I forget if she actually runs her guild, but she's, you know, this huge member of our alliance and practically, you know, runs these major events that require all this strategy and know-how and everything. And that's who's doing it, a 68-year-old woman, right? And so if we, we we need to not undo that, we need to facilitate that, right? And and one thing that often happens when people are first resistant about these ideas is they're thinking, well, you know, you're taking away from me. And, it, and it's definitely not about that, right? It's, it's, a lot of times the way we can write, the way we create, the way we portray makes it so that it's only welcome to a certain set. And, and, and we're not always cognizant of how we're not making it welcome to others. And the more we make it welcome, the more we grow the hobby and it's huge and, and all these things are just, you know, are, are great. It's just this mixing of ideas and, and cultures and that's a lot better that way. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it, I mean, I think the same thing. It, movies and, and comics this idea that well if there's more female characters in comics then there's less male characters and i don't want that so i need to be against female characters and i don't know if anyone necessarily thinks that way a b to c but yeah. it seems like that's kind of the logic and you were mentioning about some of the you know diverse members of the role-playing game community and gaming community just sort of being run out by yeah. trolls or you know people who are just get a kick out of making their lives more difficult and it's hideous stuff that's going on um yeah and it's not an easy topic to talk about i think people a lot of time like well i just want to play a game and have fun and not talk about political stuff or you know i've even seen some writers that i follow on twitter who i really respect and i like their work and they'll repost these comments of like followers saying like you know please don't talk about politics and they write back they're like uh no I'll, i'm gonna do whatever i want thanks <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, yeah absolutely it, it there are the, the more that we can help give a, a safe environment to uh diverse thought leaders right whether it's women uh people of color um different gender outlooks you know the more that we can do that then the better a place we'll have. Yeah. And I think the more that we can get onto what we all want to do, which is really just talk about gaming, right? And in, in a cool community. And that's ultimately what we want. We don't, none of us want drama. Um, but I think we have to deal with that drama and we have to call it out when we see it and we have to stand up for people and, 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 you know, speak up. So like sort of like my default mode these days, if someone says to me, Hey, do you know anybody who could be a source on this topic is I think of who amongst people I know who aren't, represented well you know who could stand up for the for one of those groups and also do that because we need those people out there right right and there usually are some great people who and that's one of the things that's changed you know in the past like if someone had asked me like who's a a great female dm that you know 10 years ago that would have been a lot harder and now i can easily list many because i've i've really been thinking about that and as i meet them i go okay great this person fantastic uh, you know i'm going to keep that person on my list and i'm going to turn to them when i have questions and i'm going to promote them when i can and so on and and then the numbers grow that way right when more and more people feel it's a safe space and that they'll get listened to and and that they you know will have an opportunity to catch people's eye and say their piece and so on and be treated like real human beings yeah <laughs> and then it happens more well and i think that's a great example of kind of celebrating diversity, just celebrating people's talents and sort of being a, a role model of sorts. Like, you know, just the fact you're in a position pretty uh, very active online and just kind of letting people know these people are talented. You should like respect these people. And yeah. the more folks who do that, I think, you know, the better off we all are instead of yeah. just letting, you know, trolls and whatnot, tear people down all the time i think you kind of yeah, have and, to and, not fight i mean you kind of have to fight back yeah at the same time one thing i'd say about the fighting back though is that um i try to be very low and sometimes i have to catch myself but but to not do things like say retweet someone being chastised or called out for what they've done mm -hmm. 
because I think we, we can all look back, most of us, and certainly me, I can look back at some time in my life when I did not think about these issues the way I do now. And I made jokes or whatever that I would most certainly not make today because I just didn't see it. And we have to give people the, the room to grow and learn uh, and, and not just, you know, the moment that something's out of line. Like, yes, we have to call it, but we, you know, not in a way that suggests this person is now nuked from orbit and can never appear on Twitter again. You know what I mean? Right. Um, sometimes I think we're just so quick to, to paint someone into a corner that all they can do is fight and lash back. And, and you have to give people that that opportunity for growth well, because I think most people will over time. Yeah, and it's something you wrote to me earlier as we were kind of going back and forth and preparing for, to have this discussion is kind of this bullet point you put of like why we should read the comments and enable discussion. Um, and I think that kind of hits on it that, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's certainly a mentality and I think it has its merits of, you know, if you have a blog or even newspapers have said, you know what, we're not going to have comment sections anymore. We're just going to put out a post or an article and leave it at that. Um, and I think there are pros and cons to that. It, it sounds like you feel like there's more cons to that approach. Yeah, because I, I think that we – I mean, I get it because nobody wants to take the time to deal with it. And, and it is hard, and it's not for everybody. I don't expect it to be for everybody to deal with things online. But I think we can. You know, like there used to be an Ian e World thread on organized play that got shut down because of addition war type stuff. Mm -hmm. And it got just so ugly so fast. And when I saw it, I was like, this is so dumb that we're going to not have a thread talking about organized play options when clearly a lot of people needed the information. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start one, but I'm going to try to write it in a way that I let people know up front, like, hey, I do like other games. <laughs> hey, I do love, you know, the people who work at Paizo, right? They're my friends too. I, you know, I've got respect for all these different companies. It's not about saying D and D is the only way to go. Sure. It's not. Um, and, and that thread has been pretty good, you know, I actually need to update it, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it's, but it, it, it went okay because I think, you know, I was willing to spend the time on it. And the tough part is people have to be willing to spend that time to go through their comments and write back to them. And it doesn't work for everything. Um, but I, I think the more that we can spend that time reading the comments and posting the comments, right? Because if if you won't take the time to write comments, why do you expect everybody else to do that who has your kind of positive outlook on life, right? Sure. If we just leave it to the trolls, then they're troll-filled comments. Whereas if you imagine, right, the end of a post being full of cool comments and then some troll writes, boy, are they like a black-and-white comparison, right? Or stark contrast between what was there and, 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 and what they suddenly brought to it. And that's what you want. You want it to be so that when somebody goes really negative, everybody goes, hey, why, why are you doing that? Sure. And so maybe as, you know, I really appreciate your the time. Uh, talked covered a lot of great topics. Um, <laughs> as, as we kind of wind down, you know, looking at looking ahead, what's something that you're really excited about, even within like the next five, ten years of – uh, role-playing games like what do you think is coming down the pike that's going to totally blow things up in a good way Ooh, that's a good question um hmm. i think there's that chance that with that the, the hobby could really grow further right we've seen these amazing fifth edition sales um we've seen these hugely successful kickstarters for games like uh, the monte cook games that have been just huge but we're also seeing some really big numbers for old games being brought back right seventh c or different things like that there seems to be a lot of capacity for the space to grow and if we can figure out the economics of it if we can keep appealing to new people and I'll just say quickly, you know, that back a few back when I was in like the you know in the 2000s playing organized play, we'd look around and we would worry that our hobby was going to die with us because we were all aging and you just, you know, yeah, new people might play but they were kind of in our same demographic. Mm -hmm. And that worry does not exist anymore. You know, I I really was worried that RPGs would not survive and uh, you know, and some have said sort of like the train hobby, right? Like but but no, I think that we're seeing lots of parents bring their kids in, and it's not just some blip that some generational now we have kids thing, but but it's continuing to happen, and we're seeing you know like it packs the twenty year olds, the teens coming in and playing it. Um, 
that really excites me. And if the critical roles and the other, you know, online play, the acquisitions incorporated, if this energy keeps coming in, bringing lots of new people in, that could be really cool. I, th I think the hobby could really end up in great places where there is a, just huge numbers um, with more positive interest and with hopefully more financial support for the industry itself. That'd be great. Yeah, and I, I really think things like the Acquisitions Incorporated, like just the, the idea that a bunch of people went to the movie theater to watch somebody else play D&D <laughs> It is yeah. pretty. I don't even think that's something I could have even imagined ten years ago, let alone yeah. twenty or thirty. So, really having the ability to watch experienced, knowledgeable players play and getting a sense of, oh, that's what D and D is. It's not just like wearing a cape in a basement. It's like yeah, educating people about what D and D is, what it's not, and kind of breaking down some of those stereotypes. I think is just going to be so helpful. Yeah, and, and on the community side of that, so, you know, Jerry Holkins, who heads up PAX, co-heads up, and and um, who is one of the players on Acquisitions Incorporated, after the show, right, I would have thought he would have gone somewhere and just conked out and slept. He came to, he heard that the DMs had their get-together that night, and after the show, he comes and says hi to everybody at the bar. That's awesome. To, to thank the DMs for running the D&D content yeah. at the show. And he came by the show area at least twice, um, and he's excited about possibly doing more with Acquisitions Incorporated in D&D. And, like, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, it's just it's great to see the, the hobby grow, and I think even, like, talking to coworkers and stuff, it, I, you know, 10 years ago, it, people would look at me sideways, whereas now it's like, they're like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting, that sounds cool. Like, when do you guys play? Like, they'll ask questions about it and be curious. It's less of a taboo subject now, at least I, in yeah. my day-to-day -day existence. That's what I've noticed. No, for sure. I, I bring it up with parents. I mean, you know, I've got kids who are uh, 10 and 12, and when I talk to various parents, and sometimes it'll come up for one reason or the other, um, maybe they're talking about Stranger Things, you know, the TV show, or, or just, you know, they ask for a board game recommendation. Before you know it, I'm telling them that I sometimes write D&D, &D, and they all go, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get, sometimes we're in the middle of other say, they're like, the, the other topics, and they'll say, like, I want to come back and talk about that D&D &D thing. Right, yes. <laughs> and and they do. I mean, they, it, it's, it is seen so differently. So it's, it's as if all those years when they thought we were basement-dwelling nerds have somehow disappeared. Mm-hmm. And it's not us versus them anymore. It's like we're all just, you know, more interested in this. And I think also that as parents have gone through in the last few years a big transition from let's get a screen in front of every kid, please, that's the key to my kid's success, to maybe these screens are a problem um, and how do I limit them and get them outside and get them to do different things, D&D &D is suddenly really appealing to parents. You know, as as a way of, of for kids to interact with one another, it's the complete opposite of the you know satanic fear days, oh, right? Yeah. It's and that, let's get them creating and expressing and discussing and and that's know. something I've I've lined up for some future interviews, talking with some of the folks who are doing like research or do like using D and D to teach like social skills and other things, um, which I'm really excited to talk about with those folks. But awesome. yeah, it's such a good. Uh, I think it's just a good time to be a gamer, which is nice. Yeah, which is nice. It is a great time. It, yeah, it, it really is, and and it feels like the '80s is always seen as sort of the heyday, you know, like because we had D and D branded baloney. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We really did. Um, somebody has a package, but um, it, you know, it's it's more than towels. As much as I want the cartoon show, it is. It's so much more tangible now. I mean, it's so easy to be part of the space. Whereas back in the '80s, yeah, you might see the lunchbox on box on the shelf. But you didn't know how to interact with people who liked this too. Or how, and now it's everywhere, and you've got all these, you know, you've got people who sort of achieve fame, like um, the folks who are on one of these, you know, shows, like the play uh, through the Curse of Strahd with D and D, right? The Waffle Crew and hashtags, and and mm -hmm. you know, and these people then dress up as their characters for Halloween, and it's so cool. And that excitement, yeah, we're really lucky to be around for this time, I think. So where can people find you online? Where can they find some of the stuff that you've written? Yeah, well, um, you can. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. With uh, the, the Twitter handle is AlphaStream at AlphaStream, and my blog is AlphaStream.org, and I write there fairly regularly. 
Um, from there, you can find links to all of the adventures that are available. Um, on the DMs Guild, I have several adventures through the Adventures League and one that's my own, and I'll have another one up there soon. Um, and, yeah, those are the best ways to get a hold of me. And since we you know, skipped talking about Pearl Jam, I do have to ask you what your favorite Pearl Jam song is before we sign off. Oh, man, that is that is a... That's a, a tough one. Um, favorite Pearl Jam song. Um, is it Wishlist? Yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's the name of it, right? Song, sure. I, I was just thinking of the lyrics and not the name, but I, I love Wishlist. That's a great song, and I'm trying somewhat deliberately trying to not take anything from Ten, but yeah, maybe Wishlist. Sure. But there there are so many just wonderful songs. But Wishlist is one I used to uh, sing to my kids when I'd walk them around as babies and they would refuse to fall asleep. That's excellent. <laughs> Not excellent that they wouldn't fall asleep, but very cool that you were uh, yeah. singing to them. Well, yeah. How about you? What's your favorite? Oh, geez. I had a... Uh, yeah, it's a tough question, it, isn't it? It is. <laughs> you turn the tables on me. Now, I, I think uh, Alive, uh, which is like the first song I heard from them like way back when... Um, is just almost like a spiritual existence anytime I listen to that, or spirit, a spiritual experience anytime I listen to that song. Um, but yeah. more recently, there's a tune from a recent album called Unthought Known, which is uh, a really cool song. But I like a lot of the stuff that never really got played on the radio, like some of the stuff they'll just play in concerts. I, I've seen them probably like six or seven times, um, awesome. including one time at Wrigley a few years ago with the Cubs just winning. Uh, yeah. It was kind of pretty pretty cool to, <laughs> That's to awesome. experience. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big nerd, big Pearl Jam nerd. Among yeah, I saw them live a couple times. It was always just fantastic, and what a band. Yeah. So well, thank you again for your time. Good luck with everything. I'm sure I'll be uh, chatting with you and asking you questions on, on Twitter as as usual. Um, Can't wait. But, uh, yeah. Uh, good luck out there. Cool. I look forward to uh, the next one of your podcasts and your next blog post. Always look forward to it. Many thanks. Take care. Thanks, Michael. All right, take care.